Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From Backpage, I'm Martin Gregg, and this is Between the Lines, a podcast telling the stories behind great sports writing. When I was looking at Steen's early life, I discovered that his first team course was Blantyre Vicks and Blantyre Vicks used to run a five-a-side tournament and they did it during the war and I discovered that the two men who would go on to win European trophies the first two in Britain Jock Steen and Matt Busby actually confronted one another unknown to each other in a five-a-side tournament in Burnbank round about the early 40s. I compared it to the playing fields of Eton, where the Battle of Waterloo was won, the Battle of Lisbon was won on that five-a-side pitch in, in Burnbank. Most listeners will know Archie McPherson's name through his football commentary work over the last five decades. Not everyone will know that Archie is also a prolific writer and biographer of the legendary Jock Steen. Archie's Jock Steen, The Definitive Biography was published in 2004 and updated four years ago. Built on a mountain of research and infused with Archie's own knowledge through his decades-long professional relationship with Steen, this is by far the most complete view of Steen's life that has ever been written. Here, Archie talks about the extraordinary lengths he went to to capture the essence of the man who became the first manager to lead a British team to European Cup success in 1967. Enjoy. So, Archie, I just want to begin the discussion of Jockstein, the definitive biography, by, I guess, really exploring your motivation for writing the book, reflecting on Steen's life and career and his untimely death. It seemed to me that there was a real gap in the market for for a definitive account of, of, of Jock's uh, life and times. I know there had been one or two other projects knocking about, but there, was, wasn't, there wasn't that stake in the ground, that really authoritative account of his life. Was that part of, of your motivation to really properly document this this giant of, of British football? Well, it was eventually, but not at the outset. It was a simple request by somebody to write a book about mm. Jockstein. His name, you might know him, Alec Montgomery of The uh, the Sun, one of the, the best writers, a Scotsman from Glasgow, who made a name for himself uh, down there in Fleet Street, along with uh, Huey McIlvany, and part of that era uh, of very good uh, journalistic writing. And he phoned me one day and said his publisher had um, asked him to look into the possibilities of writing a book about Jock Steen. But he knew uh, of my association with, with Steen, both professional and, uh, I would never say about Steen, a friendship as such, because he he, he kept you at a distance to a certain extent. But he knew I, I knew him very well in that, that sense. So he said, would I, I consider it? Now, my initial reaction was, I don't know about that. Would Jock be a man who revolutionised, not just Celtic, which he did, but Scottish football? He became a template for new thinking in Scottish football. 
He even became a template for new social thinking because as he knew, if we can put it in the demotic, he came from the other side of the tracks to go to Celtic. So in that sense, I suddenly realised there was something very useful that could be done. I also had read previous books, and I don't want to, to mention them uh, personally, that had been written about him. And they, they were cut and paste jobs. They were flimsy, superficial, didn't get anything near the three-dimensional figure that he certainly was to everybody who met him. So I thought there was a vacuum to be justly filmed. However, there is always, even though I may give the public impression of being highly self-confident, I have an, a terrible inferiority complex when it comes to even writing a sentence. And the feeling that somebody can actually write a sentence better than me or could write a book better than me. So it was a personal challenge to see if I could get my thinking into a viable shape, an interesting shape, a commercial shape. And I kind of kept my fingers crossed that at least, given his name, iconic figure as he was, at least the book would sell to Celtic supporters. By how many? I, I, I couldn't at that time initially think of, but I felt it would at least be there. And I was backed up by a huge publisher, London publisher, um, which was part of the newspaper, the, the, the um, Daily Mirror newspaper, Empire. And it was going to be a good quality book. So at least these physical things attracted me to go ahead uh, with this. It guaranteed me. They showed me some of the previous books, etc. Yeah. And they, they guarantee me that if it were finished, it would be a good product. Interesting that it was actually a, a, a London-based publisher, if you like, that, that saw the merits in Steen's story being properly documented because that speaks of his um, importance, not just to Scottish football, but British and European football. I mean, Steen is right, rightfully should be acknowledged as a giant of the European game. Uh, absolutely. It, it was uh, Jonathan Taylor, I, I must uh, give him a mention, uh, who's a, a Glaswegian who was representative of, of this, this firm. But the firm itself wouldn't have backed this up if they themselves commercially knew that Steen was a major figure in, in European football. If you were ever with Steen at, say, a, a World Cup and amongst other managers, they all listened to him. They all paid court to him. It was quite astonishing. Even after, well after, Celtic's triumph in Lisbon. So you could tell that uh, he would make an impact on any kind of audience. So that initial impression I had of, well, at least the Celtic supporters or some Celtic supporters will buy this book, which kept me going. I don't think I even appreciated, as I was writing there, that... It would make the impact it eventually did with readers who were non-Celtic. Because what I tried to emphasise in the book and what I told the initial publisher was, yes, of course, he was a Celtic manager, but he was a figure even broader than that with his influence he had on others, with his legacy. And the book was therefore a book about a major Scottish figure who had an influence not only on his own community, but other communities as well. Yeah, it's interesting you're talking about the social impact of, of Steen. I hadn't actually really thought about that, but obviously football is such a, uh, such a reflection of society, um, and this was a man that actually transcended his sport. Well, 
for example, I, I came from teaching and I taught in public schools, public with a, a small P. And you really got a Celtic scarf in these schools. Ten years after, that had all changed. It had totally changed. He had breached uh, that barrier because of his, his success. And uh, in, in that respect, he was making an impact on our thinking about the rigid... I, I hate using the word sectarian at the moment. I might get on to that. But on these rigid demarcation lines that exist between kids, unfortunately. And he got over that uh, barrier because of success. He made his club a success with his repeated wins in the league, quite apart from the European success he had in 1967. So he did make that impact. And of course, he made statements that seemed to me eminently sensible about bigotry, about that sectarian issue, which I suppose sadly is still with us, but to lesser a degree maybe now. Uh, so all, the, all these were about how he put his first foot forward and going to Celtic. This is what interested me more about the book. I realised, and I, I don't want to sound rather pompous and arrogant, although it may come over as that, there were a lot of football books that just skated over the surface. They didn't give it any depth. They didn't burrow underneath a character's skin. They didn't, they were adulatory and hagiography style and so on. Not all of them, of course. There have been obviously exceptional books in sport, as you'll know yourself, Martin. And you've, you've published some yourself. But the bulk of them were just tossed aside, you know, disposable. I wanted to write about an icon, and that, that could only be written about if I broadened them out from simply being a man in green and white that sat in the dugout. Mm -hmm. You had to be a bigger figure than that. And of course, that came across in so many uh, different ways, in the way he deployed his tactics. The first one was to take on the press. When he came on the scene, 65, March 65, Rangers ruled the roost. They were the establishment club, the influence thinking uh, of everybody. They certainly gave the impression, the media in general, that there were Rangers inclined, not Celtic inclined. And he had to tackle that head on. And he did by being sometimes brutally fearsome with journalists until they not only respect him, but fear them. He could virtually, and why was he doing this? He was doing it to reach out to a wider audience. It was no use just talking to the Celtic faithful and saying how good we are and better than the opposition. He had, it's like a modern politician, but who else outside that community did it? He was trying to con convert people to see Celtic in a new light by reaching out, by, by making sure that journalists had a different perspective on Celtic Football Club. So he changed a lot of attitudes and, and, and a, a lot of minds uh, about the club. And that was a, a, a pragmatic move by him because he commanded back pages and front pages occasionally. Mm -hmm. I mean, for a, a, a classic example was when after Rangers win and the violent collisions in Barcelona, Willie Waddle made a pronouncement on the middle of the Ibrox pitch about the need to change the ways, etc., etc. Steen realised that. And on the same day that was being given, with a lot of press publicity, Steen jumped into the terracing at Anfield, Stirling Albion's part when we were playing, and grabbed an Irish trickler, ripped it off the hands 
of the people there, threw it on the ground. That got more publicity than Rangers' so-called statement of intent. So he was brilliant that way, manipulating the back and front pages. I just want to rewind a little bit to, you were talking before about, in a writing sense, this inferiority complex in terms of how do you write authoritatively about someone else's life? Now, that, that's a huge question for a biographer. And sure. one of the, the interesting ways in to answering that question, I think, is research. You need to have done an incredible amount of research to try and nail down particularly a character as complex as Steen. Now, rereading the book for the umpteenth time over the weekend, I was really interested at the level of research that you conducted. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously you spent a lot of time in libraries and there's plenty of Glasgow Herald and Daily Express references, but Burnbank Gazette from 1941? Yes. <laughs> I mean, how on earth did you manage to get your hands on some of this stuff? Yeah, well, I did a lot, but let me mention Pat Woods. Yeah, you know great, Pat Woods Pat very Woods. well. Yeah. Pat Woods has, has researched um, at least five books for me, and he's absolutely brilliant. At not only just a kind of panoramic sweep, sweep but highly detailed, particular, and this is the great thing about a good researcher, relevance. There can be a lot of irrelevant material and so on. Uh, but I did myself, if going back to that Burnbank Gazette, I got one of the best pieces of research out of the Burnbank Gazette. When I was looking at Steen's early life, I discovered that his first team, uh, of course, was Blantyre Vicks. Well, there was a team before that, but his first really established team was Blantyre Vicks. And Blantyre Vicks used to run a five-a-side tournament, and they did it during the war. And I discovered that the two men who would go on to win European trophies, the first two in Britain, George Steen and Matt Busby, actually confronted one another, unknown to each other, in a five-a-side tournament in Burnbank, round about the early 40s. I compared it to the playing fields of Eton, where the Battle of Waterloo was won, the Battle of Lisbon was won, on that five-a-side pitch in Burnbank. So the, the, these were the things that I think had to be to be brought out, and I pay huge credit to Pat for directing me in the right directions and also for the slavish way he went about it because he loved Steen and loved Celtic, and that's half the battle. I mean, part of the, the research process is a bit like planning for gold, and it's interesting that you bring up the Busby thing. You don't spend a long time on it. You just... It's just there, but... Even as a reader, that was something that almost kind of made my heart leap because it's a, there's a lovely kind of element of romance to that as well. Mm. I think these are the kind of points that that illuminate a, a biography and make it something special. I used as my model the biography of Churchill written by Roy Jenkins. Not because Churchill was like Steen, but because of the way he did his book. The way he went and searched underneath for things, things that were relevant. I used, I used Roy Jenkins' biography, looking back on it, the way he turned a fact into a generalised, getting the particular into the universal. And, and in that sense, it, it, was, it was a great benefit to me that I had read it before embarking on the scene book and then went back to reread 
bits of it, the style of it, uh, and so on. Can't copy anybody else's style, but you know what I'm getting mm -hmm. at. In other words, it was a kind of model. So that was influential in, in, in shaping the way I approached it. You've also got a spine of excellent interviews, first-person interviews, really all the, 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 the key characters right from the start of, of Steen's life as well. You must have spent a long time mm. interviewing everyone from people who knew him as a, a very young man. Mm. Right up until, you know, Lisbon Lions and beyond. Well, sitting about 200 yards away from where we were on the other side of the Baldwell Road, I went into a wee house there where a man had been a miner with Steen. And it was he who gave me the stories of Steen feeding bread to the rats. Mm. Down in a mine, only about 200 yards away from where we are sitting. No longer there, of course. So that was a very personal thing. Uh, and and I, I, I liked these aspects of it. And uh, going back to meet some of his buddies from the past, when they used to tell me the score that he was only interested in was the Rangers score, mm -hmm. when he was a boy, emphasising the fact that he made a huge quantum leap into a, a different kind of mentality. And, of course, these are better than recounting, to me, a particular game of football. I mean, I remember writing about the first league championship win and Bobby Lennox's goal at uh, Fog Park and so on. In a dreadful game, a, a, an historical game, you know, mm. it was yeah. fraught with nerves and tension and negativity and it was a scrappy kind of goal. But that, to me, getting into something which was even more personal than that was more important. Yeah. Interesting how you use the interviews as well. And I think the the amount of direct quotes you use in, in the book, you use very judiciously. There is a trend, I think, with modern sports biographies to be very quote-heavy. And, and that's not something that I particularly like. I much mm -hmm. prefer to hear from... to hear the biographer's voice sure. coming through with a sense sure. of authority. Sure. I, I think... In a sense, I think that's more akin to American sports writing tradition where mm -hmm. people like David Halberstam and stuff would, 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 would write, would seep all this uh, mm -hmm. information in and then write from their own authority. I wonder about, I suppose it's quite a technical question in that sense, but were you conscious of how many quotes you used and, and the, the, the power and effectiveness of, of the quotes you did use? Absolutely. I agree, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Just a cut and paste job, and and, and stick it on to show that you actually did some research, or it helps fill out the book. No, I spent an enormous time contemplating when dialogue should appear in, in the book, uh, and you're right in, in thinking that. Um, I like the the good quality sports writing that you you're talking about. Uh, the Rumble and the Jumble book written by the, the New Yorker the editor, whose name I can't quite remember. David Remnick. Uh, David yeah. Aswin. Superb. Even uh, a book which I, I'm not sure if I have now. The writer of South Pacific, who wrote a book on sport, which I recommend to you, is, is superb and it's because it's personal, it's it's detailed. You You get the rugged terrain of a personality. That's the kind of writing I like. Yeah. Um, in terms of trying to capture the, the character of someone as complex as Steen, um, that's one of the things that I, I love so much about the book, that um, you get a very rounded 
sense of his character. And I guess that you mentioned, I think, in the in the acknowledgements of the book about um, the people you interviewed, and, and you talk about their their candor and how they can they they express their their views frankly. And essentially, that's the key. I mean, the, the interviewing process is so key that obviously you want to get under the skin of the person. You want to hear the truth. Mm-hmm. The fact that you maybe had a relationship with some of the players and stuff would have helped. But you must have been conscious going into those interviews that you did not want the myth. You wanted the reality. Yeah, and people were very good that way, actually. Mm. I think it was part of the respect they had for the man, that they, they, they knew he wouldn't have minded people uh, saying he could be a bit hard on players. There, was, there were times when I felt, where, where do you, where, what area do you go into? I'd heard lots of rumours and anecdotes uh, about Steen, which I couldn't justify, verify. So I decided I'm only going to write something that I can be absolutely clearly sure about uh, without lapsing into hagiographical uh, writing, which I ha- which hopefully I didn't do because there are elements in the book where it's quite clear he, com- he comes across as a, an over-robust man and could uh, at times appear quite heartless. For example, people were very... Tommy Burns, the, the late and much respected Tommy Burns, told me a story which he, he has never forgiven Steen for when he was dropped from the Scottish squad at Hampden Park before going to the World Cup when, when Steen was Scotland's manager. Well, I want to mention, he just... <laughs> He just read out a list of names, as if, right, that's the people that are going, and Ray Stewart and he weren't mentioned, and Tommy never forgave him for that. Mm-hmm. Never forgave him for that. Uh, it's interesting that that these people get their voice in the book. I mean, I would just reference um, Ronnie Simpson, John Hughes, even Tommy mm-hmm. Gemmell, all of whom had quite serious grievances with Steve. Sure, sure, um, sure. You were obviously very conscious to reflect their point of view because it mm-hmm. added to the whole understanding of the man. Well, John in particular, John Hughes was uh, as embittered as you could possibly get of a player for various reasons. I told the story about uh, John being uh, dropped for a game and uh, left the stadium, got his car, didn't watch the game, went back, bump. And Steen took him down to Kilmarnock and said, uh, you're all coming in the bus. Didn't say who the team was until they got into the dressing room and then said, right, uh, here's the team. Turned to John Hughes says, well, you can't drive home now. You'll have to stay and watch it. You know, uh, which in one sense is petty and on the other sense is, is empowerment. Who's boss? And it's all these little things that got into people's minds. I mean, it's really a form of, of psychological warfare that, that Steen wages on so many fronts. And in some sense, it's, I think it's, it's quite exhausting to try and imagine what it would be like in, in, in Steen's head. But what comes across as well is the, the, the cost of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, he comes across as, he doesn't seem to sleep, you know. He, no. you know, he has this problem with insomnia mm-hmm. and perpetual motion. Sure. There was obviously a human cost to, to, to the way he approached things. Yeah, in the common parlance, he was highly strong. He gave the 
impression of solidity and strength, but he was a highly strong man. He could flare up like that. Just unbelievable. And you, 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 you were cautious of approaching him after a defeat, although I remember in the famous defeat that Celtic had against uh, Partick Thistle in the League Cup final, where there were, I think there were four goals down in about 20 minutes. It was an astonishing day. And I, was, I did the interviews out on the pitch afterwards. And I turned round as if to, that's the end of the day, and there was Jock standing at the tunnel. I thought, oh my God. But he just said to me, well, I suppose a lot of people got the result they wanted. There, that's life. And he was like that. And on another occasion, Malpensa, in the hotel in Malpensa, when Celtic were beaten by Feyenoord. Having done the commentary with my co-commentator, I didn't need to stay on at the stadium. I, I just got in my car and went back to the hotel. I waited on for a while and so on. walked into the hotel and there were only two people there, Jock and Sean Fallon. And I thought, what is he going to say? And I walked across to them and I, I, I was saying to myself, what am I going to say? Do, do I say hard luck, which is a, a cliche and um, ineffectual? Before I opened my mouth, he said, hey, by the way, there's a load of champagne over there and I don't want it to be redundant. Get stuck into it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I mean, it's interesting that you, you, you bring up 1970 European Cup final. Mm -hmm. you, you really don't spare Steen in, in that section mm -hmm. as much as the chapter in Lisbon celebrates the historic nature of the achievement. There were obviously fundamental things that went wrong in mm -hmm. 1970 that, that mm -hmm. you, you don't back away from. For a start, the Celtic approach to Lisbon, as I said in, in the, the opening passage uh, of my book, that Celtic regarded the sun as his first enemy. He wanted to take on the sun because he absolutely barred his players from exposing themselves to the sun. Even John Fallon sitting in my first interview, sitting in this gorgeous hotel, the sun was coming through and hitting him in the top of the head through a window. And he came screaming across the wardrobe, maybe to impress me as well, of course, and said, get the sun, you know, da-da-da-da. So the approach was absolutely meticulous, except on one occasion when the players tried to slip out. Uh, I don't know whether he knew it at the time or not. And um, somebody almost broke their leg climbing over something or other. And anyway... Apart from that, it was absolutely meticulous and careful 
coordinated, disciplined. He was on top of it all every second of the day. Malpensa, this beautiful hotel on the top of a hill. It was like a holiday camp. We had Ian Peebles, a well-known Rangers man, as the agent for the Celtic players, doing deals on the spot. I mean, it's inconceivable. Well, it, it, it happened. And I still look back on it and say, no, it, how on earth did that happen? So there was a lax approach. And I think part of the reason was, I think Steen believed it was a cinch. <laughs> and I think what his mistake was, he had gone to see uh, Feyenoord playing in Dutch football, which can be at times mechanical, uh, disciplined, lacking passion. But it was that technique that was Celtic's downfall because the Dutch kept the ball very well. So I think he downplayed that. Also, Bertie Ald will tell you that um, he said Van Hannigan, he's only got what Jock said, Van Hannigan's only got one leg and he's slow as treacle or worse than that. Bertie said he dazzled me all night. One leg player though he is. So there was a an underestimation there, a serious underestimation uh, by Steen, proving that he's only fallible. Some of the, the kind of less heralded aspects of, of Steen's character get attention in the book and, and I found them fascinating. We, we know about the, the tactical and the man uh, management aspects of, of what made him um, such a great manager, but I, I love the kind of the political elements to it, and political with a, a small p, uh, although there was some of the, 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 the large p politics as well mm-hmm. uh, at times, but how to engineer uh, the outcome that you want expertly. The example I would give would be the the exit from Hibs and the arrival at Celtic. Sure. And astonishing. I mean, effectively, he was playing the part of his own agent. You know, he the, was, the, yes. The part that a football agent would play now. Mm. But in terms of the art of negotiation, it's an absolute masterclass. And he held his nerve all the way through to get where he eventually wanted to go. It was remarkable. And, and he disclosed this to you in, yep. in an incredible conversation years later. Yeah. Well, first of all, he was determined, I wouldn't say bitter, but absolutely determined to be a successful manager, given that Celtic had told him, you'll never be a manager for... for he said, they put it in these terms, you're assistant manager, reserve team manager, not assistant manager, reserve team manager, that's as high as you're going to get you. I mean, that was implied in all the talk we had before he left. Went to Dunfermline, was a success, innovated at Dunfermline, the first known sweeper in Scottish football. Um, Willie Cunningham played a role that was unheard of. He had enormous battles with Willie Cunningham because Willie Cunningham didn't understand what Steen was getting at, playing this sweeper role if you like to put it that way. Uh, and he went down and played in Everton and, and astonished people with how he played. Then he was taken on by Hibbs. But he realised, and he must have realised before he left Celtic as reserve team coach, where he won his first trophy, by the way. And it was this. Celtic were too parochial. They were too much clinging to a history of, if you like, self-survival that couldn't possibly last and endure. He must have known that. I mean, he didn't say that so much to me, but in some of the talk, he felt they would implode. They had a huge loyal support and were winning really nothing. Rangers were beating them at will. So I think 
he knew he was a candidate. As soon as he started and got the 2 nothing result against Real Madrid uh, for Hibs, he began to realise there is something in it. So when they came to him, they offered him the job three times. Assistant manager? He said, no way. Joint manager? He said, no way. And at the same time, made it clear to them that Wolves, Wolverhampton yeah. Wanderers, were interested in him, mm-hmm. which they were. Uh, and he told them that. And I think he knew he was going to win. I'm sure he felt he knew he was going to win. And eventually they they gave him the job <clears throat> after he having said, purportedly, and this is something I didn't quite get my finger on and I admit this, I run everything. Mm-hmm. Well, there weren't two players dispute that. Mm-hmm. Particularly Jim Craig, who after their European fiasco in one of the games they played abroad when they came back, terrible journey, they played Hearts. Having got back home about midnight, they played Hearts the following day. Craig was dropped because he had been sent off in the previous game. And it appears from what Desmond White told Jim Craig that he was dropped on the instructions of uh, the late Sir Bob Kelly, not Sneed. And that he came back, according to Jim Craig, Desmond came back to a board meeting and said, this must not happen again. So that might have been an instance where the chairman did have a say, whereas in the past, we all believed that it was a clean-cut case from I mean, the start. That, that jumped out to me, the, the Jim Craig juncture, uh, I thought was very interesting. And again, going back to my point about Steen being a politician, the the, the narrative that... that most people would subscribe to in that scenario was that Steen won that battle from day one, became this completely autonomous, all-powerful mm-hmm. figure. Mm-hmm. But the reality was different. And, and Steen was obviously willing to accept that to get to the point where he would become all-powerful mm-hmm. and he would Correct. have complete autonomy, Correct. he had to just work his way into that situation. He eased himself in. Yeah. There's no question about that. And once he... He, the, he he did things initially at a level where it was like a barnstorming thing at a certain level. But up there in the boardroom, I think he played it uh, quite sagaciously. Yeah. Um, one, one of the things I think that makes a, a great biography, um, we talked about the research aspect, we talked about the writing aspect, but I think proximity is really important. I think access and proximity. Mm. I think if you've lived through... Uh, you've been on the spot when these things were happening, mm. and that gives gives it a, a huge wave of authority as well. That must have benefited you greatly that that you lived through all this. You were engaging with all these personalities throughout, and and that must have fed into to, to the writing of the book all those years later. Well, I admit I was fortunate. I I got to know Steen. We started off with um, a definite aggression in a relationship between us because I came from the BBC and in his initial days Jockstein had high suspicions of the, the BBC and it was the man who ran the BBC was an open uh, Rangers uh, supporter the head of sport there nothing wrong with that mm-hmm. he's entitled to sport but I think there was a tendency to well Celtic are the upstarts and Rangers are the establishment and I think that came over to Steen and he bitterly resented that and uh, I couldn't stand it any longer so I went out to bear the line in his den as it were after he had told me that one 
he walked past me at Pitori one night and said about this particular commentator, I won't mention any names, right, he doesn't get back to Celtic Park again, and then walked on. That was part of his technique. Hit you and walk on. So I went out to see him on the Monday morning. And in fact, it wasn't the Monday morning, it was a Friday morning because that was a, the night of a replay against Aberdeen at Pitori when Billy McNeil scored in the last minute with a header. And um, I went to see him and he was standing in the boardroom with his blood spattered, his mud spattered black tracksuit which had just come off the, the, the training pitch, which he loved. And I said, well, you know, this can't go on. I'm afraid. And he had a big argument about me, about bias and reporting and trying to be fair to Celtic. He said a lot of people just patronise us. They don't really believe in us, etc. So we had a long, long conversation, which it ended up with at least I went to see him and went right in mm-hmm. to see him. And so he appreciated that. And it benefited me because I ended up by saying to him, OK, you don't like us. Come up and do the next Scotland game with me. Do an analysis of the next Scotland game. There's an, an open invite. I knew he would accept. <laughs> Absolutely knew he would accept. So up he came, did it. <clears throat> and sadly, the man who ran our organisation didn't turn up to meet him. They kind of snubbed him. Mm-hmm. Steen appeared at this man's retiral party from the BBC and gave a wee speech in honour of him. Mm-hmm. Again, that's uh, one of the, the moments that jumped out for me as well in terms of the complexity of his character, that that he obviously had this long-standing grievance against this individual. When the person retired, he mm-hmm. not only t- not only turns up at the retirement mm-hmm. dude, but makes a speech. And, yeah. and you you make a comment about the man was almost in tears. He was actually emotional. Well, that that mm-hmm. I mean that that you would you yeah. would think the opposite. Yeah, well, the case. I mean it's incredible. You compare that to the way he treated John Hughes or the way he treated Tommy Burns. Mm-hmm. You're right, the word is uh, complex, and hopefully in the book you get an idea of that complexity by the contrasts. It's like literary chiaroscuro, mm-hmm. the way you put dark against light. And that, that is something hopefully in, in an honest biography you get. Well, you, I've actually written down a quote here where you said, shake the steam kaleidoscope and you come up with different patterns. The mix of colours depends on whom you talk to. Out of the man's depths came different moods which seemed to be beyond disentanglement. I didn't know I wrote that. <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great sentence. Yeah, Wonderful it, it, yeah that's right. You, you talk to different people and you, you got uh, a different impression of them. But that, I'm complex, you're complex, maybe in less dramatic ways than he because he was a huge public figure. Mm-hmm. And uh, hopefully if you're going to get a rounded and interesting book uh, to read, you place that in the correct order. I think one of the things that really impressed me about the book is you are obviously a character in the book and very justifiably so, but I think you handle that quite judiciously, again, to use that word judicious. Um, You step into it at the right moments. I I never feel that you at any point overplay your part um, or indeed underplay your part. Mm -hmm. It, It seems to me exactly right. Was that something, was that a process that you had to think about? How much do I step into this? Well, I had to step into it. You know, I felt I was compelled to show people that as I had read the other books, they were remote from Steen. They may have known Steen through a press or or conferences or or something like that. Uh, I had to say, I had to make sure that I was very, very close to the subject, but not influenced so totally 
by the subject that I would only write good things about him. It had to be a, a properly three-dimensional rounded portrait uh, of the man. But hopefully putting it in where it mattered. Not just saying, oh, by the way, I knew George Dean well. You know, it yeah. had to be relevant to a particular context. Uh, and that's, that's, what, uh, that's what makes it effective. And when you say that, I ended up not writing a football book. There wasn't a football book I wrote at all. It was a book about a person who grew up one way, developed another way, matured another way, and reflected, almost reflected the changes in the environment that he worked in, that he had an influence in. Getting back to my writing a book about somebody, it has to be readable. Now, how you make it readable, you can't tell anybody how to make it readable. It just has to come one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, interesting that, that you have subsequently updated the book and there's the, the new foreword. And you know, I've, I've got a dog-eared copy of the book that I've had for years, but like when I reread it over the weekend, I obviously read the updated material in mm-hmm. the foreword. And, and it's interesting that you connect his story so strongly to Sir Alex Ferguson. Absolutely. Which Sir Alex Ferguson does himself. Oh. I mean, he very he, he is very clear about the influence that Steen's mm. had on him. I, I guess that's a very valid comparison to make, but also it brings it to a new audience as well because, I mean, when you think back, Steen died in 1985, there's 31-year-olds that are alive today that... that, that would sure. never have known his story. So was that was that part of the thinking about the foreword and trying to yes. bring this to a modern audience? Uh, absolutely. Uh, when they decided to republish it, which they did last summer, I thought I had to have an update of some kind. I went through the manuscript again, just a wee touch here and there. Uh, but the foreword had to be linked to the present age. And even in the book, the original text of the book, I was trying to suggest that his influence would last. And Alec Ferguson was the ideal subject to pick for that. And I remember being, I was so astonished at seeing this blue nose, if you could put it in those terms, sitting amongst the the green and white multitudes in Malpensa Airport, where all the planes had been delayed because of a thunderstorm. And we were stuck in there with thousands of Celtic and final supporters. And here was Alec sitting on his own, a player that had been rejected by Rangers, playing for Falkirk at the time. And I said to myself, so I asked him that. He was getting some gentle ribbing eh, from some of the Celtic supporters near him. And you know what? I had to go back years when I was writing that foreword and ask people, did you see Alec there? I began to doubt. Was it a figment of my imagination? And then, of course, it wasn't. He He was there, which gives you an indication of how serious... Alec Ferguson was about football and his ambitions in football. And secondly, once he had come through that experience and went to Aberdeen, he simply copied almost slavishly some of the attitudes that uh, Celtic, uh, that, that Steen had developed with Celtic in his initial impact on Celtic there. He turned it into not an anti-Rangers and we must bring Rangers down. He turned it anti-West of Scotland. West of Scotland journalists, they're all against you. Mm-hmm. And it's true, they went down south of Dunblane, Aberdeen were pushovers. And he changed that entirely. Uh, one remarkable game I remember uh, when Aberdeen scored two goals 20 minutes to go at Ibrooks, and the multitudes just turned and started to walk out of the stadium. 
That was the kind of impact that pre-Ferguson would never have happened. He had ingrained into this Aberdeen team, they're all against you, the establishment's against you, prove them wrong. Uh, and he played the press brilliantly. The press feared him, eventually. And you can see that from what happened when he went down south. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was the same down south. He copied that, uh, that technique. One of the questions that I'm sure you've been asked many times over the years, Archie, is you know, would Steen have been a successful manager in, in the modern era? And it's quite interesting, the Ferguson comparison, because the, the thing that strikes me about Steen through reading the book and also just about my observations of Sir Alex Ferguson's day they're very political and they're always seeking the the aerial view of things and and adjusting their position as such they, they want to see the full panorama of what's happening and then they can manoeuvre themselves into the right position adaptability is what I'm talking about mm-hmm. um, this is something that comes up with um, reflections in Ferguson's career that they say, well, he managed to, to adapt as football developed. Mm-hmm. Um, is that some is that something a quality that, that you uh, would identify in Steen uh, all those years ago? Do you feel that he he would have had that adaptability to say, well, I'll modify him a bit. I'll I'll, I'll treat that situation differently now than than I would five years ago. Well, Steen was the initiator. He mm-hmm. was a revolutionary. So he, in, in a sense, he didn't need to adapt. As I pointed out, even with Dunfermline, he was playing a system there that was yeah. that was very modern. Uh, Helenio Herrera played it in a much more uh, visible uh, and publicised way, uh, how to defend in depth. So in that sense, Steen did not need to do that kind of adaptation or adaptability or have that characteristic of adaptability that certainly Ferguson did have when he went to a bigger environment, a, a much more competitive environment down there. So Steen in, in himself had established the first press conference that ever happened. He established the the idea of Celtic always on the front foot, and, and, except on one famous occasion where the Steen myth overtook reality when he played against Dukla Prague uh, and was... <laughs> the conclusion of which was that he played defensively. He never did. As Bobby Leonard said to me, well, if the big man told us to be defensive, I must have missed the team talk. They were just on the back foot that day because Dukla played exceptionally well and Billy McNeil had the best ever game he had for Celtic. So uh, in that sense, he he was the progenitor, if you like. He he started things. So it wasn't so much he had to, to adapt. What Where I think... His weakness was, if you like, he wasn't ambitious for himself. He could have been the best paid manager in the world if he went to Manchester United, which he, the idea of which he toyed with mm-hmm. and, and eventually turned it down. I think, if we go back to his own personality, I think he was a homer. When he went on holiday, for example, to uh, Menorca, uh, where we, we used to go as well, we were never there at the same time as him, but we were with a lot of his friends. Uh, in Menorca, he couldn't get back quickly enough. After three or four days, he wanted back him. I, I think basically he was a homer, mm-hmm. a family man and homer. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, just finally, actually, I, I just want to ask about the, the impact of the book. We were chatting before and we started recording, you were saying that the book sold very well, which is important that that, you know, that first wave of the first publication mm-hmm. was received and, and 
the way it deserved to be. What kind of feedback do you get? Do you still get people mentioning it? Do you, you know, sure. It sure. still echoes through the, the, the years. I was up in St Andrews in West Point, which is very uh, popular with students in St Andrews. My grandson is a, going to do his master's in, physio, uh, in uh, physics, I'm proud to say. And I was in the pub with him one night, and this guy came up to me and said to me, actually, that wasn't just the best football book I've read, it's one of the best books I've ever read. And w when you get, it's bloody well worth it. Mm -hmm. All the pain and the agony, which you know as a publisher yourself, writer yourself, is intense at times. Sometimes you feel, what the hell am I doing this for? What am I going to get out of this? And then years later, when you get a comment like that, and that, that's, that's not a lone comment. I, I don't want to be uh, arrogant about this, but it, they come in all the time. Mm -hmm. Emails and, and so on about, about that, that one book. It also gave me a false prospectus on what publishing is like. Because I felt, oh, I'd write another book and just mm -hmm. get the same. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it's not the same. Thanks to Archie for agreeing to this interview. Jock Steen, The Definitive Biography, is available now. And look out for Archie's new book, Adventures in the Golden Age, Scotland in the World Cup Finals, 1974 to 1998. If you like this, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. And if you've read a story that you think would make a good feature for the podcast, let us know on Twitter at Backpage Press or email backpage at backpagepress.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.